Deep fakes are easier to create than ever thanks to the rise of generative AI tools. But what happens if those tools are used to make pornographic images and videos? Explicit content involving the non-consensual use of a person's likeness. That's exactly what our guest this episode, disinformation researcher and former US Department of Homeland Security staffer Nina Jankovitz, experienced firsthand. Here, she tells us how her work to slow the spread of fake news put her in the crosshairs of people on both poles of the political spectrum and how it feels when your body is co-opted by trolls. I'm Chris Stokel-Walker, and for human rights organization Article 19, this is Tectonic. Nina Jankovic, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. You've been a, a disinformation researcher for many years. You've kind of dubbed yourself the Mary Poppins of disinformation. <laughs> oh gosh, don't bring that one up right away. But we we can explain why it was tongue in cheek. But yes, yes. Yeah, you've been looking at this for eight or so years now. And how have you seen the space change over time? Well, I think there are a couple of things that underline how difficult this problem has become and how entrenched in particular in Western politics and American politics it has become. So in particular, we see the platforms now, which had been a little bit more interested in countering disinformation in the early stages after we first learned about Russian interference. They're moving away from those policies because of politicization. And this will be a running thread throughout this commentary, I think. Um, We are seeing the embrace of disinformation tactics that we previously only saw coming from foreign actors now being used by domestic political parties. And then we're seeing the rapid personalization of all of this, whereas before this was about kind of lofty ideals and changing policy and what have you. Now individual people, and I've had the not so luxury of of being one of them, have been demonized by different sides of the political spectrum to the point where they're receiving threats and harassment and abuse on a daily basis, all based on lies. Um, And I think that that is the scariest thing. Often we talk about disinformation as something that's quite technical and, you know, it's a phenomenon that most ordinary people don't think affects their lives. Mm. But really, it does have a very human, personal element to it. And that's something that I try to bring to bear on all of my work. And as you mentioned, the the personal human impact is is really significant. And I would love to talk about the horrible situation that you found yourself in relatively recently. But before we get to that, because mm. I think it seems like a, a useful stepping stone, and you kind of hinted at some of the abuse that you get, you obviously were executive director of the Department for Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board for a short time, but then it kind of got disbanded. Mm-hmm. What prompted that change? And how did abuse feed into that? Yeah, so the the disinformation governance board, which I did not name, by the way, I feel like I mm. <laughs> I need to I need to put that out there because I wouldn't have chosen that quite dystopian sounding name. This was meant to be an internal body at DHS to coordinate the department's existing work on countering disinformation. So this was stuff like making sure our election systems uh, through the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency 
were secure and ensuring that people had good information about when to vote, ensuring that people had access to information during uh, emergencies and natural disasters through uh, FEMA, our natural disaster agency that responds to that stuff, ensuring that, you know, people who were trying to cross the border potentially illegally or people who were seeking asylum didn't have bad information from smugglers, right? This was all work that had already been going on. And as I said before, you know, I, I saw over the past several years a real change in where the threat vector was coming from with domestic versus foreign disinformation. And I, I saw a lot of these issues that were domestic really coming to the forefront. And that's why I decided to take this job at DHS, which I lovingly refer to as herding cats, right? Mm. I was there to make sure different people across the department were talking to each other. I had been at DHS uh, about eight weeks when the department finally announced that the board was going to be launched. They did this in a very opaque way against my advice. And the right wing mostly, although there were some voices on the far left as well, uh, really denounced the board and started lying about it immediately. This is like George Orwell's book, 1984, where they had the thought police. Tell me why you don't just simply say, here's what we believe. Instead, you go out, you want to create an organization that's going to go out and tell people exactly what the truth is. That, that it's just inaccurate. Now why would you call the disinformation board? Um, Senator, let, why me, would, I mean, would, let me. Would, would the senator care to let the witness answer the question? Now is a good time to abandon this ludicrous and much maligned idea. It communicates to the world that uh, we're, we're going to be spreading propaganda within our country. It's, it's we can't even have an agreement idea. on what the FBI said was disinformation. How do you propose that you're going to have an office of disinformation governance if you see the problem in even determining what is disinformation? I am in awe of Ms. Jankowitz. I have watched her with slack-jawed astonishment. They said it was akin to George Orwell's 1984 Ministry of Truth, that we were going to be deciding what was true or false online when really it was nothing of the sort. And in fact, I have stood up for uh, freedom of expression around the world during my career in places like Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. I, I would never have taken a job that had anything to do with censoring Americans. But anybody who's listening to this right now who hates me will just tell you that I'm lying, right? There is no truth anymore. Mm. Um, and so it was three weeks of kind of an onslaught in which I was mentioned basically every hour on Fox News and major conservative influencers with with millions of Twitter followers and other online followers were essentially sicking their followers after me. Um, and I got all sorts of messages about uh, how I had committed treason. At the time, I was uh, very close to giving birth to my, my first child, and um, there were threats against him, uh, threats against my family, to the point that, you know, we were doxxed. We, we were really afraid for our safety in those, those weeks. And I can withstand abuse. I've written about abuse. I was probably the most prepared person on the planet to receive this sort of thing. And I, I had received abuse before. Um, but what made it more difficult and, in fact, drove me to resigning was that I didn't get a lot of support from the department or the Biden administration. I think they were just caught really flat footed about what to do. When a millennial, someone who had lived her life very authentically online from the point when she was about 13 years old, right, mm. um, was caught in the crosshairs of just such a vitriolic hate campaign. And they couldn't get the gumption or muster up the resources to really give me any fulsome support, whether that was physical security 
or just moral support publicly. They did kind of the bare minimum. Um, and I was offered, you know, as they were kind of considering what to do with the board. So if it's pausing because you think the board was mischaracterized, then the disinformation board is being shut down because of disinformation? Is that what's happening here? Look, I mean, the, the board was put... And they ended up, as you said, kowtowing to these mm. attacks. I was offered the opportunity to stay at the department, and I decided that it wasn't worth it to me because I felt like I could do better work outside when I wasn't going to be hamstrung by their considerations about communications, which I didn't agree with, but also I would have more support from people, as I do with my colleagues at CIR now, who understand what it's like to be at the heart of one of these campaigns. And so I imagine that that kind of raising your head above the parapet even more, you'd obviously been a disinformation researcher for many, many years. You then took this relatively high profile job and as you say, had a kind of pretty prolonged campaign against you, must have amplified the abuse much more. That was May 2022. Did that then set the precedent for this deepfake image, these videos that appeared? Yeah, so um, I got a Google alert in June of this year, 2023, that there were a couple of deepfake pornographic images of me that had been indexed by Google. Initially, I thought, I kind of laughed and I was like, wow, I wonder what took them so long. But then when I poked around a little bit more because I'm a disinformation researcher and this is what I do, it turned out that they had actually been posted last summer. But even that is quite curious, right? Because the the highest point of the vitriol was in May or June of, of 2022. You'd think that by July, August, things had calmed down. But no, in fact, they hadn't. People were still so incensed about the fact that I existed, the fact that this young woman was raising her voice and trying to serve her country, that they made deepfake pornography about me. And I think this is a good time to mention that, you know, part of this is because of the crazy disinformation news cycle that drove it all, that was in part driven by Fox News. Former head of the Biden administration's now disbanded disinformation governance board is suing Fox News. That is Nina Jankowitz, who The New York Times described as a Russian disinformation expert. She claims she was demeaned and defamed by the network in highly personal terms last year. Now, and I decided subsequently, even before knowing about the deepfake pornography that was created of me, to, to sue Fox because I believe that they should be held accountable for the harm that they caused to people's lives, individual people's lives, based on the lies that they tell. And I'm not far and away not the only one that has experienced this. And it's difficult to bring this sort of case in in the U.S. legal system, but I feel it's really important to at least try because, again, they're a multi-billion dollar, most successful cable news organization in the world, and I'm just one person. I'm a young woman, a new mother, who had to deal with something really horrible during the first year of her son's life. And I, I think somebody should be held accountable for that. So the deepfakes are just another... I would say they're not even in the top 10 worst things that I dealt with, but they're horrible, right? And that, sh- that shows how, how terrible the, uh, the breadth of all of this is and, and really how difficult it is to be on the receiving end of these attacks because there's so little that you can do because, and I will defend this to my dying day, because of people's right to free expression. Um, and so we, we run into these kind of legal loopholes and a lack of recourse that victims of online abuse, whether that's deep fake pornography or, you know, some of the other vitriol that I've been on the receiving end of, uh, no matter what you receive. It seems surprising to me that you say that's not even in the top 10 mm. most harmful things, because I, it seems intensely personal. Why was it not up there? 
I guess a couple of reasons. Um, for me, it, it felt much more damaging to have people completely inventing things that I supposedly said or beliefs that I held or acts that I had committed, like treason, for example, <laughs> than, uh, than for somebody to make a pretty bad deep fake of me engaging in sex acts and post it on a deep fake forum. And so while I don't want to undermine the significance of it, um, in some places like India or Mexico, for example, this could be not only career ending, it could be life ending for women um, in more conservative, more male dominated societies. But for me, I kind of expected it. Like I said, I was surprised it took me so long to find out. And I guess because fewer people had seen it than had seen the defamatory things about me on the largest cable news network in the world. Jankowitz, more like Janko halfwits. Part angry feminist, part frustrated karaoke singer, Jankowitz is the last person who should be trusted with distinguishing between fact and fiction. The head of Biden's disinfo board is out of her frickin' gourd. But um, it just didn't feel as, as visceral. Um, perhaps if I had discovered it, you know, in the middle of the night while nursing my son last summer, I would have been more upset about it. But at this point, I have undergone congressional depositions. I've had to face my stalker in court. I decided to sue Fox. I've become really hardened. And, um, you know, I've interviewed women who uh, were at the apex of the Gamergate harassment campaign. And one of them, Brianna Wu, she and I were commiserating. And I was like, how do you deal with this after a while? And she's like, it's because I'm broken. And that really struck me because <laughs> you might say, oh, you're so resilient. Oh, you're so strong. But really, it's just that like your tolerance for this sort of stuff inevitably becomes so much higher because you have to deal with it day in and day out. And so when somebody makes a bad deep fake, it's kind of just a shrug moment for me, whereas for somebody else, I'm sure it would be earth shattering, but it just shows the the level of stuff that I've had to deal with. And for me, the more visceral um, physical threats were much, much scarier when I had a newborn at home or when I was in the last weeks of my pregnancy and we were doxxed and, you know, sleeping with chairs propped up under our door and had to get a camera for the outside of our house. And, you know, I mean, that it changes the way you walk around in the world. Um, and that is much different than these kind of poorly done deep fakes. I'd still like them off the Internet, though. <laughs> Have you tried to get them off the internet? It's not really worth it in terms of the amount of expense and time it would take. Um, so we've got a patchwork of laws here in the United States that deal with deepfake pornography. A couple of states, including California and Virginia, have laws against the distribution of deepfake pornography, non-consensual deepfake pornography, mm. I should add, uh, because I suppose there is some universe in which someone would want to create deepfake porn of themselves, but I am not in that universe. Um, mm. So the problem is, even if I lived in a state where deepfake porn was uh, illegal, if the person who distributed the deepfake porn of me did not live in that state, it would be difficult to bring them up on those charges. There's a potential that they don't even live in the United States. Uh, we don't have a federal deepfake statute yet. What I can try to do is get my lawyers to issue takedown requests to the individual platforms. They may comply, they may not, uh, but I don't own the copyright of the original video that the deepfake was based on, 
nor do I own the copyright of the image that was used to train the deepfake on me. It was my official portrait from the Biden administration. So uh, it would be kind of, we'd hope to intimidate them and that they'd take it down. But um, I just, for me, the other legal struggles are so much more exigent that I, I just don't, until it were to gain steam, I don't really see the point. Right now it's relatively unknown, so. And I guess they would, in theory, potentially have a freedom of expression defense. Exactly. And a lot of the creators, in fact, I I poked around on deepfake forums that were attached to the website um, that were kind of sharing tips and things like that for these deepfake creators. They are very focused on those rights and say, you know, we're making art. It's interesting to me, though, that that art isn't anything to do with, you know, subjects other than women engaging in sex acts. Um, I did a search also for for Donald Trump to see, you know, uh, among all these political figures and celebrities who are depicted on here, does the former president appear in any any deepfakes? And there were a couple of videos for him, but three whole pages for his wife, Melania, and his daughter, Ivanka. So it just shows kind of what men are after here. And I feel pretty comfortable saying that they are men. They're also very careful to protect their own privacy, but they're not really considerate of the privacy of the women that they're violating. Um, and then finally, they they know the laws about child pornography. So they have a list of influencers and celebrities who are soon turning 18 and when they're allowed to make deepfakes of them, which was probably the most chilling moment for me um, in doing the research um, about the deepfake pornography that I found of myself, that, you know, they're very, very careful to protect themselves from the law. And that's why I think we really do need a federal statute here. I don't think there is a way that this would impact people who are really pursuing uh, art or filmmaking or things like that. The stuff that is being created is meant to intimidate. It is meant to brutalize. It is meant to, you know, drive women out of public life. And that's one of the reasons I am going to keep speaking up about it, even though it didn't personally, you know, shatter my existence. I, I don't want it to happen to anybody. I just think it's it's humiliating and an, a ridiculous thing that should be so easy to fix. And why isn't it fixed? <laughs> it's a question I've asked a lot, you know, and in and, and speaking with women about this, uh, a number of journalists have posed the question, you know, do you think if there were male members of Congress depicted in these videos that their minds would change? And I actually don't think they would unless they were depicted in some sort of humiliating sexual situation. If it was just like, you know, consensual sex between a man and a woman or, you know, vaguely misogynistic sex, I think, you know, they would probably be okay with that because the way that we all interpret sex acts <laughs> is uh, a, a position of power for men and a position of, you know, subjugation for women. Um, but if they were perhaps depicted in gay sex, I think that might change. Unfortunately, you know, uh, these models, as I'm sure you know, are trained on women's bodies. Most of the deepfakes that exist is deepfake pornography of women. And so I think a lot of these folks just think, oh, it's just some images on the internet. But again, for women who are in India, for women who are in uh, other places where, you know, paternalistic societies, where this would be really just ruinous, it could be life ending. And I think for women who are, as deepfakes and, and AI, you know, become more accessible and more convincing, for women who are in the public eye, this is just going to be the first order of business for anybody who wishes to undermine them. Um, and I think 
in general in the United States, we've not really grappled with the difference in the ways that women in public life are treated versus men. I'm really glad to see, however, that uh, in the new online safety bill, um, the UK is going to be outlawing deepfake pornography and uh, in, in particular is calling out online violence against women and girls. New laws will ban deepfake pornography shared without consent. In an amendment to the online safety bill, those found guilty of manipulating explicit images to look like someone else could be jailed. Which is the result of... A lot of campaigning by activists in the UK, including uh, Shay Yakawowo of, of Glitch, who has just done a brilliant job bringing that issue to the forefront. So congrats, you're all ahead of us over there. <laughs> yeah, there's the, we need to figure stuff out with the uh, online safety bill because there's still that bit is great. And then there are other bits that are yeah, not so great pretty, pretty for concerning. freedom yeah. of the press. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you touched on it there, mentioning that you know, this stuff is often weaponized and, and the worry that this is going to become essentially de rigueur for women online. You've written a couple of books, the most recent being How to Be a Woman Online, Surviving Abuse and Harassment and How to Fight Back. How emblematic of a woman's existence on the internet has the last year, and particularly, I guess, that deep faking been? I mean, I think, unfortunately, what I've gone through is really normal for any woman who is at a certain level in national discourse. Um, one of the deep fakes that I appeared in included me, Hillary Clinton and Greta Thunberg. <laughs> so, mm. so I think, you know, you, you see these women who, again, are using their voice, who deign to make themselves heard. And the immediate reaction is to humiliate them in some way. And we've seen similar things with with women on all all sides of the political spectrum, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to uh, probably, you know, Liz Cheney or or others on the Republican side as well. And again, I, I think often people respond to this as, oh, it's a political issue. You know, just here's this woke Democrat talking about women's rights, but it's really not about that. Women aren't seen as uh, as those who should be speaking up. Women sportscasters receive a ton of online abuse. Uh, women in science, uh, women who are in academic fields. I've had a lot of my male co-authors and colleagues who are in the same space as me not get any sort of response to their work when I tweet or or share content on a similar issue. I get angry emails from old men basically telling me that I need to learn my place, right? Um, and And what I'm seeing from that is in focus groups that I'm conducting with younger women, Often they're saying to me, and this is a very different way than I lived my life when I was their age, um, they're saying, you know, we don't want a lifestyle that public anymore. We have our Instagram on lock, our TikTok is locked, our Snapchat is locked. We've even got, you know, our Finstagrams that can be public, but they're not associated with our, our real name. And the reason for that is because they don't want to risk running afoul of people who could run these sorts of hate campaigns against them. And I think that's really sad because that amounts to self-censorship. Um, and it's something I think about a lot. You know, if if there had been a man in the position I was in or a different woman who hadn't studied this stuff and was subject to the similar stuff that I was 
subject to, would she be speaking out against it? Or would she have just quietly packed up her belongings, moved to Hawaii and taught yoga? I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't think a man, uh, middle-aged or young would have gotten nearly as much garbage as I received, um, just having had an internet presence my whole life. And that's really sad too. You know, you referenced the Mary Poppins of disinformation. I, um, as I said, I, I lived my life very authentically online. I talked about my interests and my hobbies. One of those interests was theater, is theater. Uh, although, you know, whether or not I do a public musical theater production in the future is now unclear because I don't want random, you know, haters showing up and threatening me or my family. But uh, I had posted a video of me doing a parody of a song from Mary Poppins about information laundering. They're laundering disinfo and we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet voice or vote. Oh, information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when I And I liked the video. It did pretty well on Twitter. TikTok, it didn't do as well. Um, but people went absolutely ballistic at the idea that somebody would have interests and express them online and be enthusiastic about something and do something silly. And I think that's really sad. If if we're not on the internet to to express ourselves, to connect with people, to bond and joke about things, then, you know, is it just this vector for hate now? Um, and that's, I've really had to change how I engage over the past year and a half. I used to as I said, be really authentic, be really myself, give give anybody a chance to ask me a question and I'd respond. And now I've blocked over 600,000 people on Twitter. I barely use the platform anymore. And I, as I find myself on new platforms like Threads or Blue Sky, I, I just don't know what to do or how to engage anymore because I still have that. It's not really a fear. I just don't have the energy um, to, especially as a new mom, to engage with that sort of stuff anymore. And that's a type of self-censorship as well. Are you broken? I think I am a little bit. Um, you know, the the sorts of things again that I think would stop some other people dead in their tracks just don't don't even phase me. And it's just been the way that I've needed to keep on keeping on. But I guess maybe not broken, scarred. Um, and they say scar tissue is stronger than uh, unscarred skin, right? So. Maybe that's the way to think about it. I'm still fairly optimistic, though. Even after all of this, I do think there is a way to shake people out of the stupor that we're in, where we're, we all think that just armchair activism and clicktivism is going to return us to a more fulsome democracy. But it's difficult. <laughs> and that's why I, I want to keep sharing my story, because this could happen to anybody who finds themselves in the crosshairs of one of these campaigns at any time. And so how do we go from sharing our experiences to solving the underlying problem that created the experiences? Well, I think we're in a really difficult situation, at least here in the States now, because we have this false narrative, just this cacophony of lies about the so-called censorship, censorship industrial, industrial complex. complex. Run by America's scientific and technological elite, which endangers our liberties and democracy. Um, and the ways that Democrats are colluding with the social media platforms um, to, to censor conservatives. Of course, none of this is true, right? Uh, there's information sharing going on between the administration, between researchers and, and the social media platforms as well. Um, 
all of that is with democratic values in mind. Should there be more transparency and oversight over that sort of thing? Yeah, I think so. I think that would have been great. I think that we should have potentially passed those regulations a while ago when we first started responding to disinformation. But now this issue has become so politicized that we can't even agree on basic oversight measures. We can't even agree on basic uh, regulations around how election ads are paid for and disclosed online. Like, that is crazy. We still haven't passed a bill here that would disclose how ads on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, are paid for during election season. One that was initially introduced after the uh, 2016 election in 2017 by John McCain and Amy Klobuchar. We haven't passed that. So I feel pretty um, pretty worried about, about the state of American politics. Where I do see hope is, again, potentially, you know, the online safety bill in the UK, although there are some legitimate concerns coming from journalists and, and free expression advocates that I am I'm worried about as well. Um, but also the Digital Services Act in the UK. I mean, the fact that we have two very strong uh, governments that are trying to hold the tech companies to account, then you, you factor in things like the e-safety commissioner in Australia and others, um, you know, I think we'll start to see a little bit of accountability. Uh, but we also need our governments and our elected officials to participate in that accountability, too. And that's something that I'm going to try to keep raising awareness about as I go forward. Mm. And speaking of accountability, did you ever find out who was accountable for the deep fake and why they did it? No, I uh, I haven't been able to find out. Um, I suppose if I had my lawyers issue a subpoena to the platform, because I do live in one of the states that uh, mm. has an uh, anti-deep fake law, we might be able to find that out. Um, I don't think it's rocket science, right? Like people hate me. <laughs> people have made all sorts of things of me. You know, some of them have created images of me with a, a nail driven through my head and, and, you know, gruesome stuff like that. I think it was just another attempt to humiliate me. And I don't think it would be particularly enlightening. I might like to have a conversation with somebody like that. I have tried that a couple of times with the trolls who write to me. One one older man had a picture of his granddaughter in his Facebook profile picture, and I kind of clicked through on his, on his Facebook, and it turned out he was a Vietnam veteran, so was my dad. Turned out that he loved football. My brother is a high school football coach. So, like, we had a lot in common, and I wrote to him, and I... I said, you know, I'm about to have a baby. I see you've got grandkids. Here's the other things we have in common. I'm really sorry you've been lied to, but nothing that you think about me that you know is true. Um, and the messages like the one that you sent me, I'm getting from thousands of people a couple of weeks before I'm giving birth. And I just want you to know that you're sending those to a human being. And he actually did apologize. I can't do that, unfortunately, for the tens of thousands of people who have sent me those messages and some people don't want to hear it at all and wouldn't back down at all. But um, but I do think that works with some folks and who knows, maybe the creators of the deep fake too would be chastened if I did get a chance to talk to them. Oh. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Nina Jagvitz, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Tectonic, a new podcast from Article 19. We hope you'll join us for future episodes 
which we'll be releasing every fortnight and looking at the wide variety of ways that the seismic shifts we're currently seeing in technology can affect our freedom of expression. I'm Chris Stoker-Walker. Your producers this episode were Christopher Hooten and Nicola Kelly, with theme music and original score by Julian Wharton. Thank you, and see you next time.